Hi everyone, welcome to the Ask the Operated podcast. Today's topic is innovation in sports betting. I'm here today with Lloyd Danzig. He's a sports betting industry expert with a focus on the evolving role of machine learning in the sports gaming and tech space. You, Lloyd, have been talking about these issues at numerous international conferences around the globe, so we thought it would be great to have you here today to discuss innovation in sports betting. But before deep diving into the issue, Lloyd, could you tell us a bit more about your background and how did you start working in this field? Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot, Sylvia. Really appreciate it and appreciate that you guys, like many people in the space right now, are saying, hey, there's no sports going on, but we have talent, we have expertise, we have some resources. What can we do with that? And I think we'll, we'll be coming back to that theme probably many times in this, in this call uh, to answer your questions. So first, in terms of where we are situated right now as we're recording, I sort of wear two hats uh, in my life, although many of those have sort of sub hats underneath them. I run a nonprofit that I founded dedicated to ethical issues in the artificial intelligence space. And so that has nothing at all to do with sports betting and everything to do with the way in which rapidly evolving technologies are impacting, for better or for worse, people around the globe. And it's an uh, awareness-based organization. It's an educational organization. I, I gave a TED Talk recently, actually, in Leuven, right outside Brussels, where, where you are situated, on deepfakes back in December. And I sit on a number of other AI governance, AI ethics-type councils and, and things of that nature. And where that intersects with the hat that I wear that's relevant to this call is my real expertise is the role of artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning in all things sports, sports betting, sports tech, sports analytics, fantasy sports, what have you. And that's why and how we came to be talking today. And, and I kind of, in my everyday job, I relate, I would say, to the sports betting world in kind of three different ways. One, you mentioned speaking. I do a lot of speaking at not only conferences, but universities and not only sort of the private sector industry conferences that many people are uh, familiar with, but a lot of regulatory conferences, which I'm sure you and, and, and some of your staff are particularly familiar with. Most recently spoke at 2019, the International Association of Gaming Regulators Conference down in Montego Bay. And aside from the speaking, I, I have my consulting and advisory firm, Sharp Alpha Advisors, and we help companies ranging from startups to later stage companies with any number of strategic, regulatory, and other related issues in the space, as well as investors uh, and financial institutions who are looking to deploy capital. Uh, and then the third way uh, that I think I, I kind of relate here is perhaps the most interesting, but perhaps also the least lucrative in the short term, which is just all of these kind of behind the scenes conversations that I get to be a part of, not as part of formal consulting engagements, not with retainers or warrants involved, but just because, especially in the U.S., things are just getting started here. Uh, there's a lot of strategic discussions uh, that, that I feel so fortunate uh, to just be involved in, and given that I'm sort of a sports fan, really, first and foremost. And, you know, not to go off too much into this tangent, but you had asked me, how did I start working in this field? And my answer, I think, is going to be something you're going to start hearing a lot more frequently. In 2018, I was I had already worked on Wall Street. I was in the data science space and I was pivoting toward algorithmic trading, you know, AI driven trading strategies, quantitative analytics for, you know, portfolio management. And then PASPA got repealed and, and, you know, myself and a number of other people said, hey, uh, we might want to give this sports betting thing a crack. 
And what I also bet you'll hear if you talk to a lot of those people is, for me, really, this goes much farther back. You know, I was interested in math and numbers from a very young age, and I really sort of kind of cultivated those aptitudes around things like sports and fantasy sports. And then, you know, in college even, I was so fortunate to take classes with Professor Rosner, who now is at Columbia leading their sports management program, and Andrew Brandt, who was the former VP of the Green Bay Packers and now is an ESPN analyst. And, you know, it, it really, to me, although PASPA was the catalyst, was a trajectory of being interested in math and numbers, how those can, you know, come together to form business opportunities and uh, just how analytics and data science and technology really support the entire sports industry and the entire sports experience. That's pretty interesting. You have quite a diverse background and you somehow managed to uh, bring them all together in your everyday job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, it's funny because in retrospect, I can, you know, put together this nice, smooth seeming narrative as if I had planned it the whole time. And I think humans are sort of naturally pattern seekers and we like to, you know, paint stories that have a logical progression. But realistically, and, and, and really, you know, that whole path was fraught with uncertainty and variability in times where it was not clear how it would lead to what sort of future and, and all that. So I, I do feel that way now. And I think that's one of the most rewarding things about being in this space, feeling like I really, you know, no time was wasted. I really have harnessed almost everything that I've learned, but it did take, you know, time to get here and certainly took a number of jobs that I did not enjoy to get here as well. And going back to our topic, so innovation in sports betting, you have a, an overview from different angles of the uh, sports betting industry. You mentioned speaking at various conferences, but also being a consultant, as well as having talks behind the scenes. So with this complete, almost complete, I would say, view of the uh, sports betting panorama, how would you describe the uh, current gambling industry? Is it an innovative industry, in your opinion? compared to others um, industry. Yeah, I think there's not really any question that unfortunately the innovation in the sports betting industry has significantly lagged virtually every other industry known to man and certainly any other industry of its size. If you were to look, you know, at any industry, biotech, pharma, aerospace, consumer package goods, retail, really every industry that, that has companies of this size particularly in the technological realm, has really far surpassed it on, on all accounts. You know, even the way advertising is sold, the way data is brokered, really is just sort of not up to code. And before getting into it, I'll say my prediction is that there is this sort of day of reckoning that is going to come here in the U.S. where, you know, on average, a lot of technology is not up to what I'll call Silicon Valley standards. And a lot of reporting and process is not up to what I'll call Wall Street standards. And that just means, you know, American investors and engineers have sort of come to get used to a certain status quo level of the way things are done. And uh, I think a lot of the sports betting assets that have been developed overseas are, are simply not going to reach uh, or meet those requirements when the time comes. Now, the more interesting question, obviously, is why and, you know, is this going to change? And I think about this a lot. I mean, first of all, one problem is, you know, on sort of the talent side. There has been a social stigma around gambling, especially in the most important sort of formative days of industries like the UK. You know, the US industry is growing in a much different socio-political climate. When the UK industry was booming, 
the the stigma around sports betting was was far different. And you only need to look at go to the nicest William Hill betting parlor in the nicest neighborhood in London. And it still is not half as nice as the least luxurious sports book in Las Vegas, because the ones in Las Vegas are meant to be a social experience, whereas the ones in the UK are meant to be more transactional. And you can just very clearly see that in many other markets as well. And in a, what, what happens is, in addition to being a social stigma you know, overseas, here in the US, unless you were going to Vegas and working in a very specific type of job, there weren't many lucrative career opportunities. And especially in the U.S., there's sort of this talent funnel where people go to, you know, great private high schools or at least work really hard in public high school. Then they get into, you know, an Ivy League college or one of the top ones. And then from there, there's kind of this natural progression. You become a consultant at McKinsey or Bain. You become an analyst at, at BlackRock, which is what I did, or Goldman Sachs. And the reason that those things are so appealing is, well, first of all, they pay very well. But second of all, Everyone agrees that if you spent two years in the training program at Goldman Sachs or at McKinsey, any company will be happy to hire you. No matter where you want to pivot from there, it's like the world is your oyster, and that has not existed for sports betting. So certainly you can see for a host of reasons that the talent has not necessarily been there in the way that it has in other spaces, which is not at all, by the way. There are some brilliant people in the space, just not at scale. And I'll tell you, last year I wanted to do a recruiting uh, trip for a sports betting startup. I flew over to the UK, to Cambridge, for their engineering career fair. And for the first half of the day, everyone was passing by my booth, even though it was talking about a sports betting job. And I, I was so confused. And I found out later, it's you know they assumed that we were paying you know thirty or forty thousand pounds a year, and that it was you know a typical sports betting job. They were not aware that you know there were companies that were getting ready to pay people you know, the, the type of salaries that Cambridge master's students want to get paid. Uh, but there's something else involved, too. And, you know, people here in the U.S. a lot have been talking about this concept. I think it's become a bit globalized called the innovator's dilemma, where large incumbent companies who have a lion's share of the market share are not incentivized to innovate, and therefore innovation falls to the disruptive, smaller, more nimble companies. In the sports betting industry, there are particularly high barriers to entry and moats around businesses and customers are expensive to acquire and all that. So if you're DraftKings, it actually wouldn't even make sense uh, for you to have you know, technological innovation as your number one priority right now because there are new states that are being legalized every day and you have to go into each of those and adhere to their respective rules and tax structures and acquire new customers and set up all of that. And, you know, in the early days, the customer acquisition is, is just what's important. What's remaining to be seen is every other industry, every other market seems to have evolved in a way where the competition in the mature state is competing on price, competing on promotions, competing with marketing dollars. People are hoping, I as a consumer am hoping, that the U.S. operators choose to compete on product and compete on innovation and leverage network effects among their users with things like, you know, social betting and peer-to-peer -peer and esports betting and, you know, competitive video game playing and whatever the next generation of virtual reality is. And it's, it's interesting. And, you know, the DraftKings stock price has brought some extra eyeballs from the investment world into this issue. That is sort of what the crux of the issue is.
The answer to your question is no. The sports betting industry is not at all a very innovative one. People might think that the product they receive as the end user is fluid. That's a different story. But when you look under the hood, very quickly you see how relatively unsophisticated things are, how much technical debt companies have built up. However, it remains to be seen whether uh, the U.S. will sort of U.S. market will sort of fall to that same fate, or whether there will be startups or venture funds that. Uh, do actually spur the type of innovation that, that hopefully me- makes, you know, uh, not only people money along the way, but brings a lot of really awesome products to the market. Yeah, very, very interesting um, answer and a lot of food for thoughts there, actually. You mentioned that you would like to see the gaming industry to focus more on competition on products. And you mentioned a number of different uh, possibilities of where the industry should look at. What do you think would be the top three innovation for consumers that could bring the sports betting industry to the next level of competition? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I'll make one more point to your last question as I segue into this. You know, the, the key thing, the hope that I have is that it didn't used to be the case that Ivy League students were graduating and going to work for the sports betting industry. But that is changing. And I now consistently talk to people with Harvard MBAs who are starting sports betting startups and Columbia MBAs who are working at sports betting companies and things like that. So the hope is that those are the people who can effectuate the the type of change and innovation that you're talking about right here. Uh, So I'd say a few things. First of all, you know, really what there there needs to absolutely be an understanding that that the U.S. market is is new and is nascent and, you know, that Bet365, which has more markets on every game, you know, than, than, than almost every other operator combined, it feels like, that is not the type of product that is probably needed or profit maximizing right now. So one level of technological innovation specifically has to be in the way products are packaged and marketed. So, you know, user interface as well as sort of branding, uh, user experience maybe would be the better term, UX, uh, to describe the whole of the customer journey, where a state like New Jersey has 17 mobile operators right now. And other than points bet with their points betting feature, there's not a single differentiated offering. And I think what PointsBet did, and, and you know, if people aren't familiar, the way that PointsBet has differentiated itself in New Jersey is many people, especially in, in NFL games, but obviously other sports, American sports as well, betting on the spread is, is very popular with American sports, whereas many overseas sports are primarily what we would call money line uh, games, where you're simply picking the winner outright or a draw in, in soccer or football, depending where you are. But in sports like basketball and and, uh, football, especially, there's almost always a a spread option. And traditionally, that's a binary outcome. If your team is favored by five, either they win by more than five or or they don't. And that determines whether you cover and therefore whether you win the bet. With points betting, you win or lose more money based on the margin by which the team covers. So essentially, if you want to wager $1 per point, and your team is favored by five, well, if they win by nine, they have exceeded the spread by four. You have bet $1 per point, and so you will win $4. However, if they only win by one, you would lose $4. And the reason that that's so brilliant is, first of all, not only because they it's it's an all it simply is an alternative and it's something different but think about from an engagement perspective if you go to a game and you bet on a team to win and they're getting blown out at halftime 
you now forfeit that marginal utility that you would have derived, which almost offsets the sort of losing the, the amount that you have bet. Uh, but now you don't even get to enjoy the second half of the game. On the other hand, if, if no matter whether they win or lose, the every point scored is actually going to impact your bottom line, well, now you're guaranteed almost uh, to have a rooting interest in the entire game. And it just seems, you know, all things being equal, if you're going to risk a certain number of dollars on a game, wouldn't you want to guarantee you're engaged for a longer period of time? And I mentioned that's sort of on the product side, but on the on the marketing side, again, just to highlight points bet here, because uh, I thought what they did was so innovative. The costs of customer acquisition are so vast in this industry right now. They are ridiculous. And it's hard to even get an accurate reading because sometimes you'll hear a number and then you'll hear other people allege that that number doesn't even include the promotions that they're offering. So you hear people throw out $1,000 cost of customer acquisition, $700 cost of customer acquisition, $2,000 cost of customer acquisition, whatever it is, you know, it's it's, it's very high. Here in, in the U.S., we had a major scandal in, in Major League Baseball where the Houston Astros were caught having cheated during a number of playoff games and various other things, not to get into that now. But the New York Yankees lost to the Houston Astros and New York is adjacent to New Jersey, which is points bets main market, or at least was at the time. Now they're also, you know, kind of opening up Colorado. And at the time, you know, what they decided to do is they sent out an email that said, the Astros cheated. If you bet on the Yankees to win the championship series or the world series, which would have happened after we will refund your bet. Absolutely. And by the way, if any of your friends bet with a different sports book on the Yankees, have them come to us and we'll refund them up to $100. And what does that mean? That means that everyone who perhaps bet on the Yankees at DraftKings but wanted a $100 refund from PointsBet had to make a PointsBet account to get that refund. And now PointsBet just acquired a customer at one-tenth the market rate. And not only did they acquire one, they stole it directly from one of their competitors. So we can see that there is so clearly room for just slight tweaks in thinking that can have massive downstream effects. And I think that is just a sort of refocusing of ideology and sort of brainstorming strategy that needs to happen. Another thing is perhaps much harder, especially because it really requires such robust uh, analytical skills and data sets and everything. But you know, one of the main advantages that machine learning has over traditional analytical and predictive frameworks is, is its latency, the speed with which it can crunch huge you know, amounts of data. And there's a very strong sentiment that here in the U.S., the, the types of betting markets that are going to be most focused on or most lucrative or most facilitative to acquiring new customers are what are being referred to as micro events or micro betting markets. So if you watch, you know, a soccer game and you bet on the winner, you got to watch the entire 90 minutes plus extra time. But if instead you turn on the game and say, will the person who has the ball make or miss the next shot? If you're watching a baseball game, will this player get on base or not? If you're watching a basketball game, will LeBron James make or miss his next shot? Those are so much easier to get involved in. You don't need to know what a spread or a money line is. You don't need to know anything about sports. And especially in the U.S. where there's the thought that there's going to be a big social component or hope that there's going to be a social component to the future of the industry, you need robust machine learning models that can run in short enough periods of time to incorporate real-time data and generate accurate pricing for those models. If you want them to be real money markets that actually allow people to put money behind them rather than just free-to-play markets, there's going to need to be uh, some sort of either 
use of lottery style mechanics or, you know, use of machine learning for the predictive modeling. So that would be my second thing is kind of all the back end stuff that we need to do to really support at full levels of liquidity the types of markets that U.S. consumers are, are hopefully or I think likely going to be most interested in is one. And then my third, and again, I, I think I could go on forever. We could talk about, you know, responsible gaming and, and, and all that, but simply the onboarding process right now, it is, we're talking about how much money and how much time and effort people like DraftKings and FanDuel and PointsBet spend on acquiring customers. The worst possible thing for them is to do that. And then the person goes to sign up and, you know, because of a technical difficulty or a KYC AML difficulty, they can't link their bank account because that's so crazy. You already did the hard work as a marketer. You're, you're losing this customer, such a valuable customer with such a high lifetime value for such a silly reason. And actually, maybe it's not a silly reason. Maybe it is. You could kind of go into it. But the point is, we really need to make sure that there, everyone is getting used to this sort of one-click everything. One-click purchasing on Amazon. Sign in here with the Facebook token. Sign in here with the Google token. Never enter your password again. Auto-save. Auto-fill. All of those directions are, are, are helping people move down the conversion funnel in whatever respective area of the digital universe they're in. And we need to see that in, in the U.S. because it's not unheard of for people to spend 30 minutes trying to sign up with a sports book. And maybe their geolocation is a little fuzzy and they're close to the border of the state and, and all these these sort of things. So, you know, just to sort of restate, I think it's, you know, the 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 reshifting of the mindset in, in how products are, are built and marketed. Uh, I think it's actual development and innovation in the underlying predictive frameworks that are used to allow for these micro betting markets. And then something as some level of innovation that helps onboard clients and just make it easier for people who do want to deposit, who do want to make a sports bet to actually you know, do those things. Thanks for these useful insights. And actually have a question regarding our current period we're living in. We're obviously living in unexpected times and a period of, uh, of crisis for the, uh, for the betting industry. I mean, COVID has been quite tough for the industry with no sports over the past months. But with every crisis, there is always an opportunity there. Do you think in the next months, the uh, betting industry will be ready to take more opportunities uh, and especially those that you just described? How would you see the next months developing for the uh, for the sports betting industry? So first of all, stepping back, industry-wide, the consensus among what I feel are just all the smartest people that I talk to is that COVID has not changed anything. It has only accelerated trends that were already in motion or about to be in motion. You know, things like working from home, taking home wellness, interconnectivity, you know, video conferencing. These are not new. They were not created by COVID. It's just that the, you know, the, the thought is that uh, the main impact is going to be an acceleration of those trips. Right. And I think that, that that probably makes sense. And And so in the U.S., for example, deal flow was being driven primarily by access to three things. And this is not, you know, this is private equity deal flow, venture capital deal flow, startups, everything, you know, access to technology. So are you buying some B2B white label software provider? Are you buying a payment processor, acquiring one, merging with one? Access to licenses. We see deals, you know, pen gaming, bar stool, where you're having this M&A that allows a previously unlicensed entity to now offer sports betting or some sort of other similar product. And then access to customers. You see William Hill, CBS Sports, 
William Hill, what do they get out of that more than anything? CBS's distribution and their customer base. Bet MGM with, with, with Yahoo Sports, all, all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You can sort of see those synergies. So I would expect those things to continue. I don't know if I'd say they're going to accelerate per se because the U.S. sports betting industry was at sort of this explosive growth stage. I don't know how much faster at least the interest in it could have been building, but certainly these things will continue. I would say the main effect will be perhaps a twist where a theme or a lens through which those three things are seen is, you know, the theme of sports and sports gaming and casino gaming as a vehicle for social connection. I know personally, for example, I've been playing more video games and poker the last three months than, you know, any time since college, certainly, because it's how I'm staying in touch with friends. And I actually, you know, I have a poker game going with a with a group chat with almost all new people that I have just met digitally for the first time, have never yeah. met in person. And we're, you're you not know, the first po- person telling me this, actually. Right. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I know that I'm, I know that I'm not. And I mean, it's it's it's, it's unbelievable. I'm having, you know, I, I, up till 3 a.m. last night arguing whether uh, a hot dog is a sandwich or not with 50 people, most of whom I've never met except through uh, mutual friends and playing poker, you know, for the past couple of weeks. And it's just so much fun uh, to, to kind of be able to do that. You know, most people don't get to make new friends outside of work uh, once you reach adulthood and, and kind of leave the university scene and how cool it is to do that and to be catching up with my friends who I played the very first ever Call of Duty with, the very first ever Counter-Strike with, and now be, you know, talking about each other buying houses and having kids over the headsets. You know, we used to get together at, at a friend's house and have four people playing on one small TV. And the fact that now it's coming full circle and we're staying in touch in that way is so great. And so the question is, okay, Okay, everyone's looking around and saying, what temporary or what COVID-related behavioral shifts are temporary and which ones have staying power and to what degree? And I think, you know, the the theme that will come from it, I don't know anything more specific than this, but like I'm saying, you know, sports, sports betting, competition as a as a vehicle for social connection, except I would argue that just like I said with the other stuff, that's not that new. What, you know, people who were confused about the barstool valuation, I think what they missed out on is the fact that smack talk culture, as I've been calling it, is a huge thing here in the U.S. Not only do people, especially the young generation, not only does, you know, millennials and Gen Z not hide their gambling losses, they almost like to brag on social media about their sports betting losses more than their sports betting wins and victories. And, you know, anyone in the U.S. who's been playing fantasy sports for a while will tell you the main reason they want to win their fantasy sports season unilaterally is for the bragging rights. Any cash prize is just incidental. The bragging rights or the, the whatever the opposite is, if you come in last place, are, are what drive people. And I think this is just going to be uh, an acceleration of that. You know, you could see a future where every smart TV comes with a camera and a holographic projector. And if you and your friends are watching a game at the same time, it puts you into a holographic virtual reality sort of chat room with the friends who are watching the game, you know, from your couch. And it looks like they're sitting there next to you. You you could very easily kind of dream up these sci-fi type products that are actually not that far off. We're already using VR and AR and all sorts of sort of crazy things in sports. So I think the stuff that you're going to see is, is like I said, an acceleration of trends. You know, you're going to see certainly an interest. Private equity companies in the U.S. are going to continue looking to assemble vertically integrated portfolios of digital sports betting assets from overseas markets and try to kind of 
package those up into a ready to go, whatever it is offering that, you know, can be deployed in a new state or a new jurisdiction. I think all these things will, will continue to accelerate, perhaps with an, an increased focus on what brings people together, what allows people to root for their sports team and their social cause at the same time, or what allows someone to play a game of Madden or FIFA while also interacting in this way and having a chat room. And I think you'll see that sort of consolidation of, of, of content, uh, of engagement, of what have you onto the minimal number of screens try to sort of get stuff so you only have to look in, in one or two places. I think everyone has realized that competition is is nonlinear. Reed Hastings has been talking in Netflix earnings calls for a while about he, he won one recent quarter. He said Netflix's biggest competitor was Fortnite. Another quarter, he said Netflix's biggest competitor was people sleeping. People are realizing that engagement is, is nonlinear. You're competing for eyeballs and attention. And it doesn't matter if that's on a screen, on a newspaper, in a magazine, whatever it is. It's a finite amount of attention. Everyone's competing for that. Sports is probably the greatest engagement driver that has ever existed in the history of entertainment. And sports betting certainly exponentiates the degree to which it is engaging. So I think all you know, you can look at that and, and hopefully project out a trajectory of the space. That said, I think there are still justified fears. There was a great article uh, Brad Allen posted in Legal Sports Report this morning with one of the original FanDuel guys about how it might still end up being the case that U.S. operators in a mature, you know, duopolistic state are competing on things that are not product and innovation. And it might actually be the market and consumers that incentivize them to do so rather than, you know, some malicious uh, sort of desire to not provide uh, the world's best betting products. Uh, so, you know, it, I think my thoughts are, I think, all well justified, and I could point to evidence for uh, sort of a lot of these things, but I think one of the most important things that that the COVID situation has taught us, you know, and I hope everyone extrapolates to their own respective industries, is that the only thing that's really unjustified as a belief about the future is an unreasonable amount of certainty about whatever your beliefs are. You know, giving room for skepticism and the possibility not only that things that you can imagine will go wrong might, but that there's a number of things that you cannot possibly imagine that the unknowable unknowns cannot go wrong. And so it's it's so fascinating. And for me, you know, a privilege I mentioned at the beginning, one of my favorite things is the behind the scenes conversations, trying to help, you know, be a part of the conversations to make sure this goes in what I think is the right direction is, is a lot of fun and, and a challenge. And, and I think there's a more and more absolutely brilliant entrepreneurs, engineers, and investors who are taking notice, uh, identifying that they want something similar. Uh, and hopefully with you know enough intellectual horsepower and some investment capital, there will be those innovations that, that get this industry to perhaps break the trend that many other markets have, for whatever reasons, fallen into. So expect the unexpected and remain open to whatever the future might bring. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of hope for the best, prepare for the worst kind of mentality. Absolutely. And I think yeah. you know, people have just to quickly borrow an example from, you know, the, my financial past. People are always, always known to, to, to do this thing where someone sits down with their financial advisor and the financial advisor says, how much money would you be willing to lose of your savings in the short term as long as it rebounds in the long term? And people will say, oh, I'd lose 50% of my savings over the next year as long as I know that five years from now it will have doubled. 
And then what happens? They put their money in the market. They actually do lose 50%. They don't, they, they didn't anticipate how emotionally traumatizing that was going to be. So they pull all their money out of the market. Then the market goes back up and it would have doubled if they kept their money in, but because they were in cash, they did not. And I think, you know, it's an interesting sort of analog and, and metaphor for, for what you could envision uh, happening where, you know, the people who are sticking in it, who really have the grit to to stick to their plan, to whatever it is, if you're DraftKings, if you're a startup, if you're anywhere in between, they're all kind of in this camp where if, if you can make it, if you can survive uh, until the point when all 50 states or maybe everyone except Utah uh, is legal, the, the prize is going to be massive. But figuring out how to get from here to there and, and what exogenous factors you're kind of exposing yourself to is, is, is scary, is uncertain, and, and is difficult. But uh, again, I do have the highest hopes. And every day I talk to someone who I, just blows my mind the difference in, in even the last two years, you know, May 2018 to about now, the caliber of st- students from top universities, from top investment banks, from top hedge funds who are saying, I want to, you know, take my talents to the sports betting industry is, is just growing exponentially. And, and, and you know, I, I think there's no better catalyst for change than that. You mentioned uncertainty, but also the fact that technology is there and that it can be exploited and used to further grow in the, uh, in the sports betting industry. Now we just um, talk about a post-COVID era, so the, the, the immediate future. But looking beyond this, like, For example, in five years' time, how do you think the sports betting industry could evolve and especially related to the consumer experience that sports betting industry could give precisely by using this uh, this new technology available today? Yeah, I think there's two main themes uh, to look out for on that exact note. One, you said, you know, you kind of like talked about it from the consumer experience, consumer product perspective. And I think, you know, That's sort of all these things, you know, social betting, peer-to-peer betting, ability to bet on video games, you know, not only esports, but actually, you know, myself playing against my friend in a video game and, and betting on that. All, the, all those kind of things, I think, kind of just keeping up with the trends and, and what's new. You know, a lot, most people are not familiar uh, with uh, a company called Dapper Labs and these things called Crypto Kitties. Uh, that were big in the blockchain community a few years ago, which were essentially these digital pets that existed on a blockchain that you could grow and trade with each other, sort of like digital Pokemon cards almost. And they didn't have any real value. It's not like they were revenue generating, but the this artificial scarcity and demand around them was causing, you know, digital cats, digital representations of Pokemon cards, basically, to be sold for, you know, $150,000 on a regular basis. And they are now teaming up Dapper Labs with the NBA in a program called NBA Top Shot, where they are going to tokenize sports NBA moments and allow you to sort of trade them in a similar fashion. You look at a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie on the Nets, and I, you know, I've been in touch with, with him and his team, and they are just phenomenal them and the guys at uh, global x ventures i believe it's called they trying to tokenize the fan experience let fans have a say in what team he plays for next or own a piece of his contract and his future earnings clearly there's a new generation of fan engagement that's not just at DraftKings, but certainly you know at, at the sports betting operators at the leagues at the media outlets and that is one principal way And then I think also there's more of a process-oriented, perhaps regulatory type of 
I don't know if I want to call it innovation, but, but perhaps that is the right word. When you talk to anyone, especially people who work in the gaming industry in Italy, where there is a total nationwide advertising ban on all gambling related, you know, products and services, and even people in the UK who you say UK gaming commission, and you see, you know, the flush run out of their face. Cause it's like the last thing they want to hear about or think about, or, you know, their interactions with the UK GC and, and how that's affected their business. And anytime you talk to these people, what clearly becomes the case is that the main lesson that the U S should learn and that everyone in every industry should learn is you always want to be proactive, not reactive. You don't want to donate $10 million to responsible gaming after there's some big problem in the news. You want to, you know, do it ahead of time and also set up, you know, a way for your problem gamers to, you know, whatever kind of needs to be done. And so just generally, I think we can look at all these overseas markets. People should study the overseas markets and the trajectories that they took and what went wrong. And there are seem to be a whole host of sort of preemptive consumer protective measures that could be taken that would not only benefit consumers by way of being protective, but would be profit maximizing over the long run, even if not over the short run for the operators, for the regulators, for the integrity monitors, because, you know, just keeping the industry free of some of the stigma that has been attached to other markets keeping it free of the, you know, not only the negative press, but the actual just negative reality of, of people becoming addicted and things like that. It, it seems, uh, studies are unclear, that on average, somewhere really just between two to three, maybe at the high end, 6% of gambling, of gaming company customers are problem gamers. Uh, and that's why you see, I think GVC just announced, you know, uh, a commitment to be to be deriving zero dollars from problem gamers by 2023. And I could have those numbers wrong, but you could see that these type of things are, are I think, again, they're, they're not only good. They're not they're not just publicity stunts that, that seem to be protective of consumers. I think they actually benefit the, the business, the whole ecosystem. And I'm a big rising tide lifts all ships uh, kind of guy where we're having, you know, just good faith negotiations and the best quality, again, entrepreneurs, investors, and engineers sort of benefits everyone. And, and that's my other hope. Yes, I want to see great products. I want to use them as a customer. I also would love to see innovation in the sense of just looking and being sure to learn the lessons that are available to us from the mistakes, you know, that many of our predecessors who kind of paved the way in other markets uh, that are now more established, the UK and Australia in particular, uh, but many others, I think that would be be very prudent and, and benefit really just the whole ecosystem. Yeah, so many relevant points here, actually. And um, just wanted to wrap up before we finish our conversation, because indeed, you mentioned a lot of interesting issues, but three things that really caught my attention here to sum up our conversation is that Uh, the sports betting industry, if they want to continue to grow and compete, they should start looking and harvesting their own talents. Then in terms of innovation, they should look more into the, uh, the products, how they're produced and marketed and start to use innovation there. And also just uh, you need to be proactive and not reactive. Um, yeah, I would just say I just often want to be careful with the word should uh, in something like, you know, innovating on product, because if you're Jason Robbins, you know, I'm, I'm almost a bit of a not quite a Miltonian, you know, kind of free market capitalist. But 
Jason Robbins' core responsibility is to maximize the return to his shareholders and the investors. And even if, you know, you, you don't believe that BlackRock investing in them or Disney investing in them, those are big companies. The, the early investors who put their faith in Jason Robbins and DraftKings years back, they, of course, deserve a duty of care to have profits maximized. And so I say I would love that as a consumer. But if you're at the helm of a company, the realities are the things that you would want as a consumer are not necessarily the things that are going to be profit maximizing. And I think it's interesting right now, the market is really set up to incentivize the startups to be the one innovating. I don't know what it would take or what type of disruption it would take for it to actually make sense for people at, at DraftKings to you know, say, oh, okay, customer acquisition is no longer priority number one. Product innovation is, you know, again, not to say they're not interested in innovating in product, but it costs so much time and money mm-hmm. to go into new states and build out user bases that I think there's going to have to be some more fundamental shift either in the way in which consumers express their demands and needs, or I don't know exactly what I I do think, you know, it actually, for better or for worse, it it makes sense the way that these industries have evolved. And maybe in retrospect, it's easy to look back on one and say, oh, how great would it have been if they spent more time developing their product here instead of gathering customers. But the reality of a day-to-day business, that time, I think, never really becomes apparent. And especially with the world on pause, it it just is so important that these guys stay relevant and stay engaging and, and retain user bases. So I'm excited to see hopefully more and more smart young people coming in, getting funded with startups that then the DraftKings and the FanDuel's of the world say, this is awesome. We're going to acquire this right now and integrate it, bring it under our own brand. And, you know, that's how peer-to-peer or what have you uh, will become more mainstream. So what you're saying basically is that the industry needs more disruptors in order to um, have a push to innovate more. That is uh, certainly the case right now is is absolutely. That is a very, I I couldn't agree more with the way you said that. Yeah. So, uh, Just uh, one final question, because of your comprehensive experience, what advice would you give to someone who would like to start in this business? Yeah, so I'd say it's very important, of course, to be passionate, and it's so much fun to be passionate about the subject matter that, you know, your company or your career is focused on, just the relevance itself. I I can even remember when I moved from trading bonds of energy companies to media companies Nothing was different about my day today life, but the fact that you know Apple was relevant and Chesapeake Energy was not, uh, even that I remember was such a great improvement in my sort of enjoyment of my work life. Uh, so that's that that's great, and of course I think it's almost a prerequisite to be a sports fan or a gaming fan or a gambling fan. Although maybe it's not, maybe just being a technology fan or an analytics fan. I certainly will say I've worked with some of the best data scientists I've ever met who knew nothing about sports and were incredible in their ability to build predictive models. But but that's I think you know th- there that last point I mentioned, I, I data scientists for example, the sports betting industry now in the U.S. and and in places elsewhere is an industry like every other one. It needs everything from CEOs and CFOs to customer service agents to sales reps to business development managers to corporate strategy to marketers. 
I, I think the answer is, okay, if, if, if sports betting is of interest, you know, that there's another step that needs to be taken. What is it that you like doing? Sports betting is not a job unless you are a sports better, uh, which is also an opportunity some people pursue. I think that that's sort of the step. It's okay. You like sports, you like sports betting, but what does that actually mean? Because you don't just get to make money by being interested in sports. And once you figure that out, I think it's probably not that exceedingly difficult. Again, all, you know, depending on sort of where you're situated, you could go look at the FanDuel, DraftKings, PointsBet, uh, the score, BetMGM, you know, kind of job boards uh, right now and see what they're hiring for and see the skill sets. But I think you look at what you're doing right now. And, and if you say, hey, I enjoy what I'm doing, I just wish I was doing it related to sports betting. Well, then that, that's that's your answer right there. Chances are your job title, whatever it is, something equivalent exists or could exist at a sports betting company, and, and if not, at a startup. If you're not happy sort of with what you're doing, then I think all that means is you kind of start at square one and say, all things considered within the whole scope of the sports betting industry, what would I enjoy doing most? You know, Do I want to be writing code and building apps and user interfaces? Do I want to be strategizing about what types of games and contests to release? Do I want to start, you could start your own uh, advertising agency. I'm going to be an expert consultant in how sports betting startups market themselves. There's really no type of job that you know would not apply or have a skill set applicable uh, to the sports betting space. <clears throat> but I think gaining an understanding of how the operators and the vendors and the affiliates and the regulators and kind of all flow and work in with one another, I think if you can gain an understanding of that and look at what skills you do and do not like applying, there is really no limit uh, to the type of career and types of skill sets that you could deploy, you know, successfully in the space. Right. So a lot of opportunities out there for uh, all the sports fun and, and sports betting fun. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, <clears throat> I, I think, you know, it's a little harder because if you want to work in finance, well, JP Morgan has a million jobs posted. There's a million forums dedicated to financial careers and helping you understand all that stuff. So, you know, I don't at all mean to <clears throat> make it seem like that, but especially in so far as, you know, Wayne Kimmel over at 76 Capital loves to talk about how a lot of the biggest companies in this space have not even been created yet. And so therefore, if you say, I love doing X, how can I do X applied to sports betting? And applying X to sports betting seems like something that should <clears throat> happen or could be commercialized and it does not exist. Well, that means it's 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 on you uh, to create it. And, and if you can pull it off, I mean, imagine, you know, going back to, you know, the first days of any given industry's explosive growth and, and being able to, to start a company there. Most people don't have that opportunity because when industries start, they are not they haven't already established a lower bound for their size by way of overseas markets and gray markets in the way sports betting has. So yes, I, I think uh, what you said is, is absolutely right. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of opportunities in the in this uh, sector, but also a lot of opportunities to create new startups in this sector as well. Right. So, well, I wanted to thank you a lot, Lloyd, for these very relevant insights that you provided and for, for these really eye-opener conversations that, that we just had. Just wanted to remind to our listeners that they can follow us on our uh, social media on Twitter and and LinkedIn, uh, as well as the podcasts are available on, on Deezer, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, and on Apple Podcasts. 
Well, thanks a lot, Lloyd, uh, for your time and for this conversation. All right. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sylvia. It was a pleasure. You know, hope you stay safe and hopefully we all, you know, get together. Khaled and I go to a lot of the same conferences and hopefully uh, some of those start back up in person sooner rather than later. Hopefully so. Thanks a lot and thanks to listeners and uh, we'll stay tuned for more episodes to come. Thanks. Bye-bye.